Um, so this morning, as Marv said, we're um, looking at the persecuted and suffering church. Um, there are two main organisations that get a lot of coverage uh, or provide a lot of information about um, the persecuted and suffering church. One is called the Barnabas Fund and the other is called Open Doors International. So we're going to look at, at some stage today some of their um, information. Um, but this last week, and it sort of culminates today, is Suffering Church Action and Awareness Week. So that is why we are marking it, and each year we try to um, do that um, about once a year. Um, it's not going to be just me today. Um, Jenny is also going to contribute um, to this. So uh, Jenny is our um, persecuted church rep. It's one of those roles that we talk about at the AGM every year where we say, who wants to be the rep for this? And then there's tumbleweed. And then um, eventually somebody uh, puts their hand up. But um, Jenny has done that for, uh, for a number of years. Um, and there's previously we've had a group that has prayed regularly about persecuted um, church so today we're going to look at some ways that we can play a role in supporting um, the suffering church. We're also going to recognise some of the link between the suffering church and climate change. And this week, um, unless you've been um, living under a stone, you should be aware that it's been um, COP26 has been going on, uh, the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. And so we wanted to tie in uh, with some of that and how some of that links to um, our faith and how we need to live our faith out. So just to give you an idea, over the next um, little bit of this service, what might be the long bit of this service, um, before we get into the detail about the persecuted church, we're just going to look at what the Bible has to say about persecution and take some lessons from that uh, for ourselves. We're then going to unpack some of the kind of big picture stuff around the persecuted church. Um, Jenny's going to give us a few stories uh, and accounts and some detail um, that kind of brings that to life. Uh, we're then going to watch a very short video, um, which is a clip of an interview with two women who were imprisoned um, in Iran. And then we're going to look in a bit, uh, very briefly, at some ways we can get involved and then put one of those into practice and pray. So if you're watching online at the moment on YouTube, um, if you're part of Woody, we've sent a link round for a with a Zoom code. So when we pray in groups at the end of the service here, if you're watching online, if you log on to Zoom and you've got time to do that now, we are actually putting the feed for the live stream through the Zoom as well um, so that you can actually form an online prayer group and continue to participate. So we're going to um, take a look at Acts chapter 14 uh, in a moment. But before we, we do that, let's just uh, pray before we open God's word. Father, we thank you for the church across the globe. We thank you, as Martin already shared earlier, that we can gather in freedom in this nation. But Father, we know that when one of our brothers and sisters is hurting, we hurt too. So as we look at our, uh, the situation in the church in other places, would you stir our hearts? And as we look at your word now, would you open our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. 
So if you've got Bibles or Bible apps and you want to follow, um, if you want to turn up Acts 14, we're going to read that in just a moment. Um, but if you look through the New Testament, you don't have to look too hard to find the church facing persecution. If you think just of Jesus' life, um, he actually discussed it in his teaching on multiple occasions. He was preparing his disciples to expect to face persecution. And then Jesus himself, as we know, faced it directly and was beaten and killed. We know that Paul, before his conversion, when he was uh, known as Saul, was himself one of the leading persecutors of the early church. And then in Acts chapter 8, uh, we have the great persecution. Now that's when uh, the stoning of Stephen took place and it led to the church scattering from Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria and into Europe. And that was actually an event where Saul, before he became Paul, was watching on and gave his approval of. And what we now know with hindsight is the scattering of the church from that day was critical in the growth and spread of Christianity. God was able to bring great growth to the church and many people got to hear of Jesus as a result of that persecution. And then we know that after Paul's conversion, he and Barnabas ended up on the receiving end of many forms of persecution and he discusses it in many of his letters. If we go back to the Old Testament, we could look at many examples of those who spoke up for God, particularly those that were challenging the status quo or the authority of leaders in the land at that time, and they found themselves subject to persecution. But as I said, this morning, we're just gonna look at a short excerpt from Acts chapter 14. Now we're going to be looking at the book of Acts as part of a new series um, continuing Luke's account in the new year. Um, but I think by jumping ahead to Acts 14, we're not going to steal anybody's thunder um, for some time. So what's been going on in the lead up to this chapter? Uh, as I said, we've got um, this guy Saul who becomes um, Paul, changes his name after a radical encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's in chapter 9. And it says in verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. His conversion led to an immediate and radical change in his behaviour. And later on in that chapter, it says this baffled the Jews living in Damascus. They couldn't understand how this guy who had been persecuting the church the early Christians, the disciples of Jesus, had suddenly become one of their main proponents. And the next line then states that after many days, and we don't know how many days, the Jews conspired to kill him. So it didn't take that long between bafflement and then significant disquiet and Paul facing persecution for his beliefs. But something happened in that encounter with Jesus that led uh, to this massive change in how he behaved. So because he is now, uh, his life is under threat, Paul heads to Jerusalem and meets, uh, tries to meet with the disciples and meet with Peter uh, and the others. And actually they are afraid of him 
because they don't understand what's gone on in Paul's life either. They don't believe he's genuine and it takes some time before they're actually willing to meet with him. They think it's a trick. But then uh, he does build relationship with Peter and the other disciples and then we know that he's preaching boldly in Jerusalem. So that threat to his life does not cause him to stop preaching. He's moved to a new place um, because that encounter with Jesus was so impactful. The message that he needed to share was so vital. Then he ends up with attempts on his life in Jerusalem and the disciples pack him off to a place called Tarsus where he launches his first missionary journey which we follow through part of the next few chapters of the book of Acts. And he travels around strengthening the church, that very church that has been scattered as a result of persecution that he was party to. So that's all in chapter 9. We then skip forward to uh, chapter 11, where Paul's story, uh, or the account of Paul, crops up again. And he is with some of these churches. And he ends up in Antioch, which is where the term Christian was first coined. Then we leap ahead to chapter 13, and Paul is preaching to the Jews in Antioch. And it says huge numbers are coming to hear Uh, what he has to say responding to the message. And it is both Jews and Gentiles. And in verse 44 of chapter 13, it says, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Well, I think we've obviously got um, some way to go in Cardiff. um, And maybe uh, that would, it's just hard to fathom that a message would um, go that far and wide. But unsurprisingly, and as seems to be uh, the case, as we've already heard through the Old Testament and the New Testament, that causes massive jealousy and disquiet amongst the authorities of the day. Their power base is being disrupted, whether that's uh, the Jews or the Gentiles. And it says um, in verse 50 of chapter 13 that uh, the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, who was his uh, sidekick. So Paul and Barnabas have to move on again from Antioch to Iconium and then to uh, two cities called Lystra and Derbe. Again, they're not deterred, they're not put off, although they move on to new ground. And then in Iconium, they are effective again. It says they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to ill-treat them and stone them, but they found out about it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, where they continued to preach the good news. And that's where we um, pick up the account in Acts chapter 14, um, verse 8. I'm just going to paraphrase that because we've got a lot to to go on, um, get through today. But there is an encounter where Paul heals a man in uh, this town. And this man has been lame from birth. And there's this really strange chain of events which is rooted in the history of that place. So all the people in uh, in the city... Um, are amazed by what Paul and Barnabas have done in healing this guy and they think that Paul and Barnabas are the gods Zeus and Hermes in human form and so the people want to sacrifice 
um, make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are going around saying, hang on guys, we are not Zeus and Hermes. We're just regular guys, um, we, but we have encountered Jesus and we want to tell you about God. And there's, there's a real major scene going on. And the, the reason being is that there's a legend in this location that um, there were um, human forms of Zeus and Hermes that came to this place and the people ignored them. And only one really, really poor family took them in and gave them hospitality. And so the legend was that there was a huge flood and everybody died apart from this one family. And so that's um, kind of in the minds of the people of this city, this local legend. And they don't want the same thing to happen again. If these, if these are um, the gods in human form, they want to um, worship them. Anyway, Paul and Barnabas have a major problem. And in the intervening period, uh, the Jews um, hear about where, these are the Jews that don't uh, like Paul and Barnabas, hear about where they are and actually send uh, people from Iconium, where they've just been and they've had to uh, escape, to um, affect what's going on here. So that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 19. So we'll read from verse 19 to the end, and it said, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. So they convinced the crowd, and it says, They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with disciples. As we know, Luke has researched his account so that there would be a detailed set of information for us to follow and the believers at the time. So this is not just some hearsay, <clears throat> this is the closest thing to a researched history that was available in, at the time. So I just want to bring out a few points from what's been said here. First, Paul has clearly faced repeated persecution, culminating in a stoning where he's effectively left for dead. But repeatedly he continues to preach the gospel. This message he, has, he was bringing was not just some bright idea. If that were the case, I think anyone would have shrugged their shoulders and given up by now. Paul understood that this message was so critical for all to hear that nothing could stop him. And then verse 20 really stood out for me. 
where it says, but after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back to the city. At his time of greatest need, the other disciples protected him and allowed him to recover. And then after that, he continued to strengthen the disciples. There was this mutual engagement as they faced adversity, encouraging them to remain true to the faith, teaching them that we must go through many hardships. He's not promising them an easy path. He's living proof that this path is the tough option, the one that attracts opposition but an encounter with Jesus is transformative. It cannot be dismissed. It does not leave you the same. And it cannot be kept inside. And then at the end of the chapter and this mission, he returns to Antioch from where he started and he recounts all that God has done. And just from that, there's some real challenge to us. How do we respond in the face of and in this country, what is generally still very mild persecution? Do we stand and continue to preach in the same way that Paul does and in the way that he encourages the other disciples to? Have we had or let slip that transformational encounter with Jesus that drives us with such a passion we cannot but share our faith? How do we encourage others that do face adversity? Are we like the disciples that gathered around Paul after he had been stoned, enabling them to recover? It's a great picture of the church gathering around those who are weak and broken, giving them space to heal, protecting them from further attack. Are we like Paul, seeking to encourage and strengthen those in the face of adversity? And after we've faced adversity, do we share with others all that God has done? Or do we so easily focus on the negatives? Do we shy away? So I'm just going to pause there and pray uh, with those challenges uh, left in our mind and then we will go on and look at some of the situation with the persecuted church elsewhere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we know from studying it that we should expect difficulty and persecution. But Father, from this passage we know that we need to be strengthened, but we need to strengthen others. As Paul did with the churches he visited, but as the disciples reciprocated for him. Father, would you help us to become that ring of safety for those who are in need? To protect, to give space. Father, whether that is Christians in other parts of the world, whether that is people in our own community that are going through difficulty, those that just need space and time to heal and maybe need protection from what is going on around them and in the world. Father, would we as a church grasp that picture of the disciples encircling Paul, keeping him safe? 
And Father, as we now go on to look at what is going on around the world, would you open our eyes, but would you also stir something in our hearts that we wouldn't just do this once a year and then put it out of mind or think that we have done our bit? Would you cause us to, uh, with regularity, pray for our sisters and brothers who face adversity similar to that that Paul faced thousands of years ago? It's so easy to live in uh, what we seem to think is civilised Western world, where we have the freedom to worship. Yet in so many parts of the world, that is not the case. So would you continue to speak with us and meet with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're now just going to look at a few ways in which the modern day church is suffering and under persecution. And some of the ways that we can uh, respond to it and be like that ring of disciples around Paul. So I'm just going to, as I said, share a very brief summary of the extent of some of that persecution and suffering uh, and some of the causes of that. And then Jenny is going to come and give us some specific examples. So as I said, the the Barnabas Fund is one of the the key sources uh, of information available to us as the church to find out about what is going on. We're going to share a whole load of links with you in Woody Weekly and uh, in other ways this week so that you can uh, find out more and you can bookmark them and go back to them. But they've written an article called Hard Pressed on Every Side, which sets out uh, many of the pressures facing the persecuted uh, and suffering uh, Christians today. And I've simplified it into four headings that I'm very briefly going to go over, uh, and they'll be on the, the screen now. The first one is government policy. There are many countries where the government is at the, at the heart and the source of oppression for Christians, where there are extreme anti-Christian policies, um, such as in China and North Korea, where the evidence is that that oppression is increasing. There are authoritarian governments increasing surveillance on Christians, both online and in person. There is military oppression in Myanmar. There are many countries where it is a capital offence for Muslims to leave Islam and become Christians, uh, whether that's Saudi Arabia um, or elsewhere. Not only is there the issues of government policy, but then there are often community level pressures where Christians are minorities, so it might not necessarily be government sponsored. There's discrimination, marginalisation, harassment, there's false accusations and violence at the local level. And countries such as India, Pakistan and much of Central Asia, uh, this is a problem where Christians just aren't able to feel safe in their own home or their own town or walking down the street. There is the risk of terrorist violence where there are militant groups active in many areas and it's a really, really big issue in Nigeria at present and I'm sure you've seen some of those accounts on the news. And it's been uh, declared Uh, by one study that it is close to a Christian genocide going on in that country. But there are other parts of Africa and the Middle East where this is a major problem. 
And then the church is also suffering as a result of natural disasters, war and conflict. And that may not seem like um, direct persecution, but it is creating suffering for Christians in those parts of the world, often affecting those parts of the world already facing discrimination and harassment. It can often force Christians to have to flee, uh, whether that's violence or conflict, or whether it is the effects of climate change. In fact, climate change and natural disasters caused more displacement of people than wars in 2020. And that can often push Christians into areas with even greater persecution than they faced at home. And it's actually um, caused specific discrimination where aid and relief are distributed. There's accounts of actually COVID-19 relief uh, being denied to Christians and having their food ration cards torn up. So there are multiple causes. There are some good news stories though, so I don't want to just leave it all on one side of the coin. In Sudan, the government has announced an end to the death penalty for people who leave Islam, along with other reforms. They've then removed Islam as the state religion after 30 years of religious law. And Christian, Christian and Muslim leaders have signed a declaration to work together to promote religious freedom. So these situations can be reversed through prayer and lobbying and the efforts of Christians. Now Open Doors, the other organisation, um, maintains something called the World Watch List, which identifies countries where Christians are under um, persecution and discrimination, and they categorise it in three ways um, uh, as part of this, high, very high and extreme. And there's a map um, on the screen, hopefully, um, coming up. And there are 12 countries in the most recent watch list ranked extreme, which are coloured red. Um, we're just going to try to get that uh, map up. I will read the, uh, this list briefly. Uh, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, India, Iraq and Syria. So those, in those 12 countries, it's determined that Christians face extreme persecution and discrimination. There are then um, 38, they actually, as part of the watch list, just look at the top 50 countries. Um, but there are um, more than that that fall into these categories. It's apparently the first time where more, the top 50 has included um, everyone, uh, every one of those countries is either extreme or very high. And it, looking at the statistics, um, persecution continues to rise. So if we can flick onto the next one, we may or may not be able to do. Um, in the top 50 alone, there are 309 million Christians facing very high or extreme levels of persecution and discrimination. That's a 19% increase on the previous year. 60 million more Christians are facing extreme or very high levels of persecution than they did in 2020, 2019. Globally, 340 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination, or more. And this is the first year, as I said, the entire top 50 fall into the highest two categories. One in eight 
one in every, of every eight Christians in the whole world are in extreme very high or high category. And that's one in six in Africa and two in five in Asia. That's nearly half of all Christians in Asia facing persecution and discrimination. As we said, uh, there's been a massive improvement in Sudan. Sri Lanka has actually um, improved as well and dropped out, uh, fallen 22 places in, in a year as a result of massive improvements. But China has risen into the top 20 for the first time in a decade. And after many gains uh, in terms of religious freedom or being able to meet, the church has, had to, um, has been facing increasing persecution. And last year, 4,761 Christians were killed for, their, for faith-related reasons, an increase of 60%. As I said, Nigeria is a real problem. 3,500 Christians killed in Nigeria last year for their faith. So there is a major, there is major difficulty for so much of the church. So Jenny's just going to come and bring uh, a few more stories um, for us so that you don't listen to me endlessly uh, all morning. Uh, and then we will, uh, I will come back and we will watch a very short uh, video clip. Martin, where did the microphone go? <laughs> the world are being persecuted and I know in previous years we've then looked at different countries and focused on a few of them and shared what's going on in those countries um, but whilst I was looking through the um, Barnabas information and open doors information what really struck me was that they were also talking about groups of people um, particularly women and children and, and refugees and so um, I decided to um, look at persecution of women across all of those countries um, and, and the, uh, how children are also involved in that. Um, and women, are women and children are vulnerable anyway, irrespective of their um, faith, just because of their gender and their status in society. But women are then doubly persecuted um, or doubly at, at risk because of their gender and then because of their faith. Um, and it's actually been used as a weapon and a tool to dismantle the church in those countries and to undermine Christian communities and to destabilize them. So I would really encourage you to have a look at the information on Open Doors and Barnabas Fund because it's really moving and it's absolutely traumatic to read what happens. Um, it's never a good idea to get the most emotional person in this church <clears throat> to talk on this subject. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to try and hold it together. Um, so, um, and, and also when you're looking for, when you're looking for specific stories, um, actually you can find some and I have got a few little snippets for us because I think it does bring it home and make it a bit more relatable, but um, actually sharing some of those stories, it can sometimes put those communities at risk. Um, and so in some um, parts of the world, 
um, stories aren't really encouraged to be shared in quite the same way as we would want to hear them. Um, and I know that from personal experience as well. So what I'd also encourage you to do is Sometimes these statistics can be really overwhelming and can just sound like numbers, um, and you can sort of miss the people behind those numbers. And so I'd really encourage you just to sit with all of this information when you've got time uh, and sit with God with it and just imagine what it's like to be in their place and to be in their shoes and to have to hide all the time or to be completely alienated within your home from your family and from your community. Um, because when you start to imagine just for a little bit of what that's like, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it just gives a complete different perspective on what trying to uphold our brothers and sisters in this situation is all about. So, um, yeah, so persecution in, in countries where that are already hostile to Christianity um, is targeted towards the vulnerable. And so that then has an increased impact on women and girls. Um, it suppresses the church uh, and can do that because it does it in hidden ways, in ways that have low impact upon the perpetrators and, um, and in ways that are quite effective. Um, so it's very um, insidious, really, um, and maybe more so than we had thought. Well, more so than I had thought, anyway. So um, typically, they would be countries such as Asia, um, the Middle East, and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, and the main... Uh, ways of doing that would be physical violence, social ostracization, um, and sexual violence as well, um, irrespective of age. Um, so just to give a few brief overviews, so in Africa, um, sorry, in Asia, um, Christian women can be trafficked as brides, um, taking advantage of their already low social economic status, um, proposed to have honorable marriages, um, and then uh, they're met with the complete opposite. And then they're in a marriage whereby they have to, by law, take on the religion of their husband. Um, and then you have prevented the, the wife or the woman from um, passing on her faith to her children, or she has to do it. Um, in the dark after hours. Um, then in Arabia, um, in the Arabic Peninsula, sorry, um, you've got often Christian uh, women are um, sort of household maids or household helps um, uh, because sometimes you know they're not educated, that's the only work that they can get, and then they're exploited and abused within those homes um, and then can't get out of them. Uh, and then in Sub-Saharan Africa, you've got militia groups attacking uh, Christian communities, as we know with Boko Haram. Um, I know this is all a bit hard-hitting, sorry people, but I think it's also important for us to know that, to know what goes on, so that we can actually be moved to do whatever is within our gift to do. Um, so Open Doors have issued this, this great document, um, and they, they break it down into sort of a persecution that's hidden, complex, and then violent. Violence, I think, can speak for itself. The hidden aspect um, comes from um, either being within the homes. Um, so some, uh, uh, there's a, a brief little extract from um, a girl in Asia, sorry, who um, became a Christian. Um, oh, sorry, excuse me. Um, in India, 15-year-old Tara uh, lived in the same house as her family, completely rejected by them because of her faith in Jesus. 
She wasn't even allowed to use the kitchen in case she polluted the food and water with her unclean faith. Rejection is a common experience for new Christians when they choose to follow Jesus. If a family has come to faith together, they may be rejected by their community, but for lone believers like Tara, the pressure is even greater. Nobody speaks to me. I'm estranged in my own home. Um, and then thankfully now she was then um, living safely elsewhere. But that is um, a very real um, issue and problem for uh, and trauma <laughs> for some of these women. Um, it's, um, it can also be hidden within society and within data. So um, Open Doors have done a lot of research to try and find out what the actual figures are. Um, and in some of those top 50 countries, you've got 84% of women um, having reported some form of sexual violence and 64% of them having reported um, physical violence. Um, but the, as, as with violence against women anywhere in the world, um, it's often underreported because of the impact that it then has on their community and, on, and how it reflects on the men within their community who would be deemed to be um, the, uh, deemed to have the responsibility of looking after the females, of keeping the family safe. And if something's happened to the, a female, then they haven't kept their family safe. And so therefore, it actually brings shame on them if those um, women come forward. And so sometimes societies and their communities will encourage the women to stay silent. And so then they never... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so then they never have a voice. Um, I've only got a few minutes left, don't worry, people. <laughs> um, and uh, it can also be um, quite complex where, it's, where it is um, coupled with the loss of the man from the home. So in, in um, cases of um, militia groups attacking Christian communities, if the men are killed, then the women are widowed. And so then they've got then they're triply vulnerable. They're widowed, they've lost their social standing because they don't have a man. They have also probably lost the main source of income of, of caring for their family. And they're a woman and they're a Christian. Um, and so um, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, there are stories of ladies who have um, who fled, you know, the militia attacks on their villages, um, and then when they came back, their husbands were gone. They had three children. They were widowed. They had no home, no nothing apart from the clothes on their back. And then somehow they have to try and get food and food for their children, and then that leaves them incredibly vulnerable in terms of how they're going to do that. Um, there's. Uh, it, adding to that complexity, um, it, adding to that complexity, um, there's a story from um, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, a lady who has been named Esther and was abducted by Boko Haram when she was 17. She was forcibly married and endured what you can imagine while she was held captive. Um, when she was returned to her community, she was pregnant with her daughter, Rebecca. But instead of receiving a welcome after her ordeal, or instead of receiving any kind of compassion or um, help for her trauma, um, Esther was shunned by her friends and family um, because they identified her as being part of the enemy and because they then identified her offspring as being um, identified with the enemy. And so they, they kept 
They called my baby Boko, she says, when really she should be called Rebecca. Um, so, and then in the Middle East, um, it can often be a bit more insidious. Um, women are often kept in house arrest or admitted to asylums um, or forced to marry um, people of other faith in order to dilute the Christian influence in, this, uh, in those environments. Um, in Egypt, Coptic Christian girls are being kidnapped and, and married into Islamic families. Um, and so it's quite hard-hitting what I've just shared there. Um, but I think it is important that we realize that <clears throat> not at all to diminish the persecution that goes on to the men in those communities at all, because obviously that's very real and just as traumatic, but women face a different um, ordeal and they face a different risk. Um, and sometimes they don't necessarily have the support that we would assume that they would have if they're coming back from their trauma or if they've experienced trauma within their community. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just think it's important for us to be aware of that and then for us to think about what we can do as uh, a church and as individuals in order to support them. Um, and, uh, and, and if you look at the Open Doors website in particular, they've got lots of different ways that you can do that through prayer, through supporting projects where they're trying to empower women back into work and empower them into um, being able to financially support themselves and their children. Um, and also what you can do on a political le level to kind of raise awareness with your local political leaders. Um, yeah, so... And then I was just going to say two lines on what Stu alluded to about climate change, um, whereby um, it's not uh, persecution, um, but um, it does it already exp it adds to an already vulnerable um, group of people, whereby you know Christians can't necessarily access um, the aid that we assume that they can access, um, and um, they're already under pressure to um, keep their farms going, to um, keep their churches running, to support communities um, with the little that they have already. And then when you've got the effects of climate change upon the farming, upon, um, you had like massive locust plagues, plagues all across um, Pakistan uh, last year, um, then, then that already compromises the little that they have. And so, um, you know, I know climate change can be an overwhelming topic as well, but if we can then do something within ourselves and within our little uh, gift to then be able to reduce our carbon footprint so that we know that we're doing our bit, not just for our planet, but also for our brothers and sisters who are risking their lives every day to try and feed people that they can then be um, they're then putting themselves at risk whilst they're also trying to then support those communities. Um, so, yeah, that's all I have really to share. <laughs> Thanks for coping with the tears. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Um, I think when you couple those accounts with the statistics on the scale of the issue, it should move us to tears. Um, and I would really recommend doing what Jenny said and just spending some time and letting, letting it impact you, you know, not rushing off and you know, sweeping it away. 
Uh, we're now going to just watch a clip, uh, or it's two clips taken from an interview um, with two women, uh, Mariam and Mar Marzia, um, who were imprisoned in Iran in 2009. They were uh, Muslims who converted to Christianity um, independently of one another um, and then came to uh, meet and went back to Iran to share the gospel and to give out Bibles. They were accused by the authorities um, of evangelism and apostasy and sentenced to death because of their faith. They were then um, imprisoned in a, a notorious prison called Evin Prison um, in Iran uh, and eventually they were released after 259 days. Now there's a whole 40-minute um, uh, interview uh, which is available on YouTube and as a, a podcast uh, and we will share the links and I would really recommend uh, watching it because their story uh, is incredible but we're just going to share a few minutes um, of that. Uh, they were interviewed by Nikki Gumbel as part of a, a conference at Holy Trinity Brompton. Um, so we're going to uh, share just a few minutes of that now, hopefully. But praise God, uh, despite all these difficulties, uh, again in Evin Prison we had uh, many great opportunity to share the message of salvation uh, with many prisoners. And uh, for the first few months I remember there were some prisoners, they were um, prejudiced Muslims, they called us dirty uh, Christian, I mentioned earlier, because they believe that if you convert from Islam, you're infidel and dirty. But we try to show them who Jesus is, what his teachings are by our behaviors rather than our words, by respecting them, by loving them, by praying for them, and by helping them. Uh, for example, there were some prisoners, they couldn't afford themselves to buy food, they didn't have any family, and we try to help them, and every day we were praying for them. Uh, we were crying with them, and because of all these behaviors and because of our prayers, they could see uh, many miracles uh, through our prayers. They could see the power of God, and uh, that's why uh, there were some prisoners, they came to us and they told us that um, we can see there is a difference between our faiths and your faiths, because every day we are praying namaz, but God doesn't answer to our prayers. But when, we can see that whenever you pray, God answers to your prayers immediately. And that's why they changed, uh, they changed their behaviors with us and they started to listen to us, to respect us. And also there were some guards, they came to us and they, uh, they asked us to pray for them and they apologized because of their behaviors. And it was a miracle because they could see the power of God through our prayers, they could see his miracles. And we believe that um, we were more free inside the prison to give the message of salvation to many prisoners rather than outside the prison. Because when we were free, we had to pray and ask God to lead a right person to us to talk, but inside the prison we could talk to anybody. <laughs> and one day I heard, um, I heard uh, uh, one of my interrogators talk to me and he was very angry and he told me that, uh, I heard that uh, you're talking to prisoners about Jesus. And I told him, yes, of course we talk to prisoners about Jesus because I believe that it's not uh, our faults, it's your faults because you arrested us and you put us in that prison and prisoners are curious, they ask us why you are here, what is your charge? <laughs> so we had to explain to them that why we are here, so it's not our faults, it's your fault. <laughs> and they were angry. They were angry about this, but they couldn't do anything. And that's why we believe that even though the Iranian government had tried to silence us by keeping us in that prison, 
but we had more opportunity to share the message of salvation <laughs> with many prisoners. And also, we believe that the Evin prison and um, the detention that Mariam explained uh, became our church, because uh, before we got arrested, we had a different view about church. That church is just a nice building that we can attend, we can worship God, uh, we can enjoy uh, our fellowship. But later we understood that, no, it's not true. Everywhere can be a church, even a dark and brutal place like Evin prison. And after 259 days, they release you. Why, why do you think they released you? Uh, for the first uh, few months that uh, we were in Evin prison, uh, we, uh, we didn't have any connection with the world outside, and we thought that we completely forgotten because we were not allowed to call our families. But after a few months when we called our sisters, we heard that many Christians from uh, different parts of the world are supporting us either by praying and sending letters to prison, which was so encouraging for both of us by hearing that, and we understood that we are not alone. Instead, we have a big Christian family that they are supporting us and they are standing uh, with us in, that, uh, in this, uh, that battle. And uh, we believe that the most important reason that uh, we are free today, we, be, we got released, uh, it's because of God's grace and His power. But the second reason we believe that it's because of Christian support. For example, when we were in that prison, uh, we heard from some guards that every day we were receiving many letters, and they told us that every day you're receiving about 50 letters, and your letters are more than our official letters. And they were angry about this, but they couldn't do anything. They could see that there is a unity among Christians, and we are not alone, and that's why they had to change their behavior with us. Even though we couldn't read those letters because they didn't give us um, any of those letters to read, uh, but we heard from some of uh, those guards that some judges forced them to uh, open those letters, to read uh, those letters, uh, to check what people uh, has written for us. And some of them became curious about Jesus and they came to us and asked some question about Jesus. And for example, they asked, what does it mean? Jesus is shepherd. And we, we tried to explain to them. And um, we understood that even though we couldn't uh, read those letters, but God used those letters to send his message to the guards, to the judges. And we really praise God for this. Also, Iranian government were under so much pressure from some international and influential organizations, such as United Nations, Amnesty International, and also other, uh, there were other organizations that they covered our news, like Elon Ministry, like Open Doors. And also, we heard that even Pope from uh, Vatican sent a letter to Iranian government and asked for our release. And because of all these pressures, the Iranian government had to release us, unlike their desires. Because of the politics, they wanted to show that there is religious freedom in Iran, which is not true. And as you know, still there are many Christians who are in that prison and suffering for their faith. So just to um, conclude, and we're, we're going to pray, but we wanted to highlight three ways you can get involved. And we, we've kind of mentioned them already. Firstly, we can pray. Um, and to pray, we need to be informed. And as we've said, we've shared some of that information today. Uh, we will send around links to um, many of the sources that we've, we've um, shared. Um, if you want to know more, speak to Jenny or I afterwards or, or any point um, over the coming uh, weeks, and we will point you in the direction of, of that information. Um, and in a moment, we're going to pray in groups, um, either online or, or here. Um, so that we can actually put some of that into action today. I know time is, um, is passing, but I think it's important that we do that. 
Secondly, you can uh, write. You know, there are many ways, as Jenny alluded to, there are there is info on Open Doors and Barnabas Fund about how you can uh, get involved. But as we've just seen in that video, actually writing can make a difference. It can have wider consequences, not the, we might think we're just writing to encourage uh, someone in prison. Uh, but maybe it will actually impact uh, the guards or the authorities in that prison. Maybe it's just part of um, you know, adding to the pressure uh, on the authorities in those nations. Um, if it was you, as Jenny said, put your, uh, yourself in their shoes. Um, would you want people praying for you, fighting for you, knowing that they are interested in you and caring for you? As we heard about those uh, disciples that gathered around Paul, uh, can we provide a ring around those that are in prison? Uh, and thirdly, we can look at our carbon footprint. Um, just on Friday, there was new research covered in the media that shows that the carbon emissions of the richest 1% are 30 times higher than that which is compatible with the target of maintaining global temperatures uh, within the one and a half degrees target, which has been much of the discussion this week at COP26. The emissions of the richest 10% could be enough to exceed that level, whatever the rest of the 90% of the population of the world does. And it's almost guaranteed that nearly all of us are within the richest 10%, and some may be approaching the richest 1%. So it's people like us that have to make a change to the way that we live if we are to avoid that being exceeded and increasing beyond what we're already seeing in terms of the suffering church and the displacement of people that is already going on. As Jenny said, it's not only that we should be um, doing that because we have been entrusted by God to be stewards of the world in which we live, but also because we're putting our Christian brothers and sisters in increasing peril and causing them greater suffering. So we're going to pray now. So we'll get into some groups. If you will move chairs um, in a moment, um, we will let the, the Zoom people um, uh, pray. Uh, but in the room, if we want to get into some groups, if you can move your chairs so that you've got a bit of um, distance between you, as I'm sure uh, you'll be well aware, probably there's enough for um, you know, three or four groups or whatever. Uh, we've got some topics that we will put up on the screen uh, to pray. Maybe you can choose one of those countries we talked about or you've heard mentioned, if you can remember them, um, and pray for that. Maybe you can pray for the leaders of oppressive regimes. Uh, you could pray for those in prison. That might be in a formal prison. It might be imprisoned within their own home, as Jenny was talking about. Uh, and uh, one of the things I read was that actually because of COVID-19 and actually people having to stay at home, it has made the situation for many of those people um, even worse because they cannot get away to interact with others that they may have been able to do. Pray for the COP26 um, climate conference. Um, which is ongoing. Uh, maybe it is starting to diminish in the news, but it goes on. And, uh, you know, there are decision makers um, that need to make brave decisions there. And also pray for our responses, the things that we can do and that we wouldn't just uh, leave here. So um, if you can um, get into groups now, we will pray for uh, a few moments and then we will close and there will be um, opportunity for tea and coffee. So, uh, yes break out into groups. <laughs> 